You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. How are you doing, Camille? Hi, Tom. I'm doing well today. Well, we have a very interesting topic today because as you were talking, we started discussing how our view of what is important information, how it changes over time. And we have a guest today who formerly worked at CrowdStrike. He's now moved on and we'll introduce him in a minute. But he's got a great set of stories and experiences that help us understand how the way we think about personal information today or privacy today may look very, very outdated in just a few years from now. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I did too. You kind of brought up the point that when you were in school, you used your social security number as your student ID. We all laughed. And then, you know, he mentioned that actually that wasn't a problem maybe back then, but you couldn't do much with the social security. But now the world has changed And so he got us starting to think about what are the kinds of personal information that we may put out there or make available because today it's not a problem. Nobody can do anything with it. But what about in 20 or 30 years, you know, and really building that threat model, looking forward to future use cases when we think about privacy today. Yeah, it was definitely one of those moments where we were just sort of talking and not really expecting to get our eyes open to a brand new subject. But it happened and to both of us. And I think everyone listening here will probably have the same sort of experience of like starts to make you think, well, maybe what I'm doing today seems really innocent and there's no no problem with it. But will I regret this years down the road? So what do you say we get right to it, Camille? Yeah, I would love to. Our guest today is Alex Unescu. Alex is a founder of Windsider Seminars and Solutions Incorporated and the previous VP of Endpoint Engineering at CrowdStrike. He is an experienced executive, author, and computer security expert with two decades of experience in OS development, Windows internals, and kernel programming, and five years experience in ARM embedded hardware architecture and kernel development as part of the iOS team. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for having me. So that is quite a background. Maybe spend a few minutes and and tell us a little bit about yourself and the kind of things that you're working on now. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, I grew up as a stereotypical hacker in the 90s, spending a lot of time taking uh, apart various operating systems, writing viruses for fun and trying to figure out how things uh, work inside and out, following various folks in the industry and keeping up with Black Hat and DEF CON talks and all of that. Got an amazing opportunity to work at Apple for four or five years during the first versions of the iPhone and all of that. 
And then uh, joined up Dimitrio Perevich in Georgia at CrowdStrike uh, since day one. Spent 10 years there uh, building uh, the company, the product, the teams. Wild ride. And on the side, I continue to do all this uh, reverse engineering, Windows internals, working with uh, Marcus Sinovich and others on books, tools, trainings, and yeah, living and breathing cybersecurity. So uh, still doing that part, even though I'm taking some, some time off from the day-to-day of running a company and a team. Well, we're certainly happy to have you here on the podcast. Your perspective should be really interesting, given that your time at these companies, and specifically around CrowdStrike, without talking about CrowdStrike directly, but just how has the security landscape evolved and changed over your tenure? It's been really wild. The last 10 years in cybersecurity, I think, from, from at least my vantage point, have been a, a paradigm shift. So when I started at CrowdStrike, one of the ideas was Nation states are, are going after companies, they're stealing data, um, they're getting competitive advantages, they're figuring out mergers and acquisitions. And this was widely believed to be fantasy by the average folks, or you know, one-off governmental things that happen every three years. And you know, the NSA and China are fighting, not mom and pop's uh, movie theater is is getting you know hacked into uh, and people's records are being stolen. And Companies were afraid to name countries, the McAfee's and Symantec's and all the antivirus companies back then were not really talking about nation states and, and naming. Uh, to world today, where, you know, Mandian, FireEye, CrowdStrike, many other companies are naming countries, you know, doing reports on here's activity out of China, out of Iran, out of Korea. And everybody's aware this is happening. The Sony hack with North Korea was, was you know, one of the most famous ones known by, uh, by the public many others, obviously DNC and so on and so forth. So this has become a reality. So I, I can talk to, to friends that are not in, in the industry, and this is something they're aware of. 10 years ago, it was science fiction for most folks. So a lot of little things have changed, but I think that societal change is, is the one that marks me the most. The, the element that you mentioned, which is people thought it was like the boogeyman, People would talk about it, but it didn't really exist. It really didn't impact you or you know that your company. I think that's gone. I'd love to get your perspective though on do you think it's changing behavior? I think in some ways behavior is changing, but a, a related question would be: is the change in behavior mounting to anything? Are we changing outcomes? And I'd say be, behavior is probably changing. Folks are more careful uh, at companies are thinking about this in terms of budget and risk and spending money on, on these things, training their workforce to make sure they're not clicking on spear phishing links. And people in general, I think, are more aware. At the same time, the attackers have adapted to that and are doing other things now that people are not training for and thinking of. So it, it may sound pessimistic, but I'm not sure the outcomes have significantly changed in the last 10 years. I'm not saying we're fighting a losing battle, but I do think we're swimming against the current, so to speak. And there's a lot of more swimming needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Do you think the increase and huge boom in IoT has played out the way you expected it to? Has it changed endpoint security notably? Is there no going back or was it overhyped? I actually personally think that IoT has not had the impact I thought it would. I thought things would get a lot worse. I don't see, you know, outside of security conferences, toasters getting hacked and and hackers really getting into companies through their fridge. 
But I don't think that's because IoT isn't, I'll, I'll say, a disaster it's from a security perspective. I think it's because it's still so easy to go in through the endpoint. It's it's almost sad to me that IoT hasn't become how hackers get in because it's the, the endpoint's still not where it needs to be. Um, and that's started to change. Windows 11 has a bunch of security features. Companies like Crosstrek and others are making a difference. So hopefully we'll, we'll harden up the endpoint where they need to use the toasters and the fridges. But I think that IoT hasn't quite caught up with that in most cases. I don't see people breaking into hotel rooms with stolen cards or things like that or hacking networks through email servers. Some exceptions aside, it's still so much easier to do on a regular machine today. What are those major vulnerabilities that you think still exist in the endpoint? You said, you know, it's, it's too bad we haven't hardened the endpoint more. Where could we be doing better? So I think the the biggest thing I've seen, uh, including with Crashrake, is there is a huge, huge compatibility issue, especially in on enterprise systems, right? You know, the, the recent print nightmare and principal or bugs on Windows, for example, months and months of, of trying to, to patch that correctly, because here's one more feature used by enterprise for 20 years to, to make it easy to install a printer. So there's a, a large amount of behaviors and features and functionality that exist on take PCs, for example, that are don't make sense in today's security landscape, but are hard to get rid of because then you would be completely breaking down an enterprise's ability to, to get their job done. There's, you know, entire people joke about who still sends faxes. There's entire departments in, in very large companies that if they couldn't send a fax using the Windows machine, things would break down. Excel macros, right? I I know entire CFOs that run their, their public company out of Excel macros and a thousand spreadsheets. So how to get people away from those insecure environments, configurations, and settings without causing millions of dollars of lost productivity there's not an easy solution to that. And these components are very old. You know, the principal in Windows is I think a 35-year-old code base at this point. Obviously, it's going to have issues and you can't just spend time and go rewrite that component. And I think that those problems on the endpoint are, are not intractable, but have a very long shelf life. Well, and I know that you're an optimist. And so I'm sure you have a brighter view of the future looking forward. So where where do you think some of those advancements are going to happen on the client endpoint? Yeah. So I, I think going forward, there's, there's a number of things that are pointing in, in a good direction. A lot more work these days is done in the cloud, right? So a lot of new companies, a lot of startups, a lot of departments are moving to doing everything in the cloud, for example, whether it's G Suite or Office 365 or whatever their preferred mechanism is, that automatically removes a lot of complexity off the endpoint. Now, the cloud is not a panacea. It's obviously got its own issues as well, but it's a more modern set of systems that can be secured a little bit better than the average endpoint. So I think the shift to virtualization and cloud environments is helping, as well as you know, the, the operating systems are getting hardened, the hardware is getting better. Right? So today's PCs and Macs have all sorts of security features built in that even though the attacks can still happen, the vulnerabilities are still there, the ability to, to weaponize those attacks to actually have an outcome that's beneficial to the attacker, it's getting a lot harder. And, and with you know, new version of Windows coming out, even more so. Today's PCs, for example, aren't being necessarily sold as just faster. They're also being sold as faster, better, and more secure, right? So it's kind of become part of the, the marketing lingo. Here's a new version of an Intel processor. Here's a new version of, of Microsoft's Windows OS. 
and you should upgrade because it's more secure. That that's an amazing message that we didn't have ten years ago. Ten years ago, there's two more cores and one more gigahertz, which you know is is meaningless in this battle. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the word security to include privacy and even ethics, if you think it extends that far? Yeah, I think uh, when people think of security in, in real life, they think about privacy and integrity and then safety and all those things. I think the the behaviors we do online mimic what we think of in security. So before people start doing banking online, for example, I don't think necessarily fraud was included in in security. And then as we started doing that, you know, with social networks, uh, I think that had a big part into privacy being part of security as well. So I think the, the word to your point is adapting as we're doing more things on our computers on these platforms, what, you know, we want to feel secure, be secure, um, you know, honesty, authenticity, integrity, all these things to me are part of security as well. Yeah, I think it's it's our users that kind of defines what keeps being added into that bucket. You know, it's interesting that we we talk about privacy now and it's it's sort of, you don't have to be a technology geek to think about privacy. But if I think back just to my college days, which unfortunately was a little further back than I'd like to think now, but my student ID was my social security number. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, almost 30 years ago now. That's a lot of change, behavioral change, societal change. That's happened in a relatively short time. When we think about how open we were just about data and information to now where there's a hypersensitivity. And, and, but obviously when you're talking about people and behaviors, there's always weakness, right? And people can be tricked to give away information. And that's, I think, still, still the world we live in today. Even though we've made huge leaps, there's still a lot more to go. Yeah, what's interesting to me is I think that the social security example, either two ways of looking at it, right? One is all those uh, situations where we're misusing a number and they weren't being secure about it. They weren't keeping it private like they should. But a counterpoint might be, what could you do with someone's social security number 25, 30 years ago? Probably not that much versus today, right? Today with a social security number, you can open credit cards, you can do a lot more things, probably because of automation, because of systems that do less checks. I think 30 years ago, if you wanted to open a credit card, you pretty much have to walk in person into a bank and, and know someone. I mean, I wasn't in the US back then, but generally I feel it's, we consume so much more now that systems are more easily set up to intake our information and the power of having someone's information is increasing. So maybe 30 years ago, it was fine for your social to be your, your student ID number. Who cares? Today, with that information, you can destroy someone's life. You can swat them. You can do all these things you weren't able to do before. So, and as we build systems today, people and systems builders should be thinking, what type of data am I using as input that today maybe isn't important, but in the future it could be, right? And genetic code is, I think, one, one example. Everyone is uploading all these things into 23andMe, all these other websites that obviously have, have nice benefit, but who knows if in 50 years, what somebody could do with your genetic code. We go sci-fi, maybe they could build a clone out of you, right? That's not in the threat model today, but 50 years from now, it might be, and we might be laughing. Can you believe people uploaded their genetic code on websites back in the day? Interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Do you yourself do online banking? I do online banking. I do 23andMe. I do all the things that 
we need to be careful of. And I think it's the best you can do is just mitigate your risks, right? Check your balances, check your login, check your audit history. But if, you know, if one day something gets compromised, we're all in the same bucket. No, nobody's immune from getting owned, so to speak. With your perspective in the industry, who do you think would be a company that maybe our listeners who are trying to say, who's doing it well, or who should I maybe contact to understand the sort of security journey, to work with them because they've got a great set of offerings or solutions or whatnot? Who do you think is on the forefront? So obviously I'm, I'm selfish going to, to throw my old company name into the mix and say Crossrig, I think is definitely a player in there. I would expect you to say though, yeah. <laughs> Microsoft obviously is, is taking security very seriously. You know, I've seen Satya pour billions into it and really try to make this part of Microsoft's DNA as well. And then beyond that, you know, there's lots of consulting companies and, and resellers and, and others that'll take a whole holistic approach at everything. So I, I don't know the names of, of all the companies, but in general, I'd say um, it, it's about the vibe that you get when you interact with a salesperson or doing a, a proof of value is, are they trying to sell you a product or are they trying to sell you a partner and a story? And, and that, that I think is where we've seen successful partnerships you built where they're not just trying to get you to install something and then never talk to you again, but you know they ask questions about how do you handle your email? How do firewall rules work at your company? How do employees log into the systems. And when you see a security company ask those questions, it means they're thinking about more than just how do we get you to install this thing and, and how do they play into your, your security ecosystem. And those are good signs that you're having a good conversation with someone that wants to be your partner and not just make another sale. I just watched this Tom Cruise movie called Night and Day, and he's telling the hostage, well, we'll just call her a hostage. He says, if they come in and they start telling you, we're going to make you safe and secure, we're going to stabilize the situation. He's like, those are the buzzwords that mean you're in trouble and they don't have anything good in mind. So I'm wondering, are there buzzwords that you hear that people bring up in this context that you say, run, they don't know what they're talking about. They're throwing something in. Artificial intelligence. <laughs> I was thinking you might say that. <laughs> If you hear those two words, it's time to run away. And I think if you hear machine learning, ask some questions, right? I think those are two words that I hear all the time. And the, the reality is we, as a society, we have not yet invented artificial intelligence. You know, we have machine learning, we have some pretty good models and approximations, but uh, anybody that tells you there's some sort of product that's AI driven and you just put it on and, and never think about it again. I mean, we, you know, we don't even have self-driving cars yet, right? And it's been 10 years, I think, Elon is promising those. So it's it's a journey until you get systems that manage themselves or operate themselves. And, and all these vendors are trying, obviously, to reduce friction. But in security, you're going to have a human element. We're just not at the point where you don't need someone double-checking the log, doing the audit trail. We can minimize it as much as possible. But we still need humans for now. Uh, maybe one day we won't. What is a reasonable application of artificial intelligence in cybersecurity? Alert reduction, for example, right? Risk scoring, things that help you navigate the 20,000 alerts, the 20,000 employees, 20,000 binaries, which ones are more likely than not to be malicious, insider threats, misconfigurations. I see AI today as a prioritization of what's more important and less important. 
but to me, the final determination needs to come from, from a human outside of very, very basic examples, right? We all know that if it's mimicats.exe and it's the exact binary of the mimicats GitHub repo, uh, it's mimicats, but that's not even artificial intelligence anymore, right? A lot of companies use string matching and regular expressions as artificial intelligence, and obviously that doesn't count. Yeah, there's no doubt that there is a, a lot of overuse of these buzz terms. Artificial intelligence is one of them. It, not that it's not a really cool technology and that it won't have value, but I think people are definitely over-promising where we're at today. Uh, so Alex, this has been great. And I think it'd be, uh, it'd be a shame if we missed out on our most fun segment of our podcast, which is fun facts. So I wonder if you have a fun fact that you'd like to share. Yeah, I've always been a reverse engineer at heart and, and more than just computers. And um, I like to build these very gigantic Lego sets, the Star Wars Imperial Destroyers, you know, the Millennium Falcon, the six, 7,000 piece Hogwarts castle. And I've always been amazed at how Lego gets all the pieces there, then there's nothing missing. But I had a particular set where once we were done building, we had a piece missing and I was told this could never happen. <laughs> And then I, I called up Lego and I said, how is there a piece missing? I thought you guys measure everything and weigh it and they have these whole systems. And they asked me, do you have an extra piece by chance? I said, yeah, there's one extra piece that I can't <laughs> figure out where it goes. And apparently their system is based on light. It's based on weight. It's based on shape. And there's an insane corner case where a piece might be missing in your set and a different one might have fallen in from a different bucket. And if it just has the right shape, size and color, it'll trick it into thinking that the set is complete and it happens in something like one in a million sets. But it was fascinating to me in terms of, of making the relationship between how this works and a lot of how security products work as well, right? To me, it was, it was, it was kind of fun to find flaws in systems like that, even as something as simple as uh, Lego bricks. That's great. That is really cool. So Camille. Yeah, we've lucked out with the missing Lego piece too. So I... Uh, I've been interested in frogs. My son is trying to get me to get him a salamander and it's been like years that he's wanted a salamander. So I just thought, you know, he's not the best with care. So how long can a frog survive without water? So I was Googling that and I found out there's a frog in Australia that can store water in its gills and its tissue and even its bladder. And it can store double its weight in water and it can live for up to five years without drinking after that. Wow. Jeez. So perhaps I, if salamanders are anything like that, I may not get out of this one. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. I bet you salamanders don't live anywhere near that without water, but anyway. Right. Um, and Alex, by the way, on the Lego thing, I figured they would ask you, do you have a cat or something <laughs> that ate the piece before they started asking about extra pieces? The that was a very long set of troubleshooting steps yeah. where they assumed I was making a mistake before it got to <laughs> level one support that knew what was happening. You're like, Absolutely. you don't understand who I am. <laughs> I have not made a mistake. <laughs> All right. So that does sound like me. Yeah. So my fun fact has to do with airplanes. And it's because I am one of those people who's really looking forward to going out and starting to see customers again and visit. We're not there yet, um, but hopefully not too long. It'd be good to get out there. So I started looking up how fuel efficient jets are. 
specifically in this case, I just happened to look up 737s because it's kind of the the workhorse, at least domestically here in the US. And it turns out that on in rough numbers, just rough numbers, that a 737 burns about 5,000 pounds of fuel an hour. And that translates to about 750 gallons an hour. And so I did a little bit more research and specifically the 737-800, if you calculate a hundred nautical mile trip, this is assuming 162 passengers, that it's about 96 miles per gallon per passenger, which equates to 0.593 miles per gallon for the entire airplane. Not the most fuel efficient. Half a gallon per hour. Yeah, half a uh, or per, mile. per kilometer. Miles per, mile. per gallon. You get a half half of a mile per gallon. Not the most fuel efficient, but I thought pretty fascinating, especially when you think about uh, flying across the country or something like that. That's uh, it's a lot of fuel they burn. Well, you picked a short haul flight. <laughs> That's true. I did pick a. You should think about somebody if all those passengers are driving a car the same distance. The plane would still win. That's true. Maybe unless you're driving Teslas or something, but yes, 200 people in a Tesla. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. All right. Well, Alex, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your background and your insights. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks a lot for having me. This was great. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.